and welcome to The Odor Approach, a podcast created by medical students for medical students to teach you about all things otolaryngology. I'm your host, Hannah, and today we're going to be joined by Dr. Darren Shea. Dr. Shea is an assistant professor in the Department of Otolaryngology, Head and Neck Surgery at the University of Ottawa. He completed medical school and is Royal College of Surgeons in the UK before returning to Canada and completing residency at the University of Ottawa. He specializes in neuroautology with a subspecialization in dizziness, vestibular disease, and balance disorders. He founded the Multidisciplinary Dizziness Clinic and the Rapid Access Dizziness Clinic at the Ottawa Hospital, both of which specialize in tertiary-level care of patients with chronic and acute dizziness. He's the director of the Ottawa Hospital Vestibular Lab and recently helped establish the Vestibular Audiology Clinical Assessment and Testing Clinic where specially trained vestibular audiologists assess and test patients with dizziness. His research interests are focused around vestibular disorders such as recurrent benign paroxysmal postural vertigo and the role of cannabis in the treatment of dizziness, as well as the pathophysiology and treatment of functional disorders like persistent postural perceptional dizziness. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Shea. We are really looking forward to hearing about your career and journey. So why don't we get started with our first question? Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so uh, I guess I'm originally from Toronto and uh, I took the interesting course in the late 90s to uh, go from high school to do medical school in England. I guess the original reason for that was to try and avoid undergrad, want to kind of fast forward to being a doctor as soon as possible. and. England gave the opportunity to do that since uh, medicine over there is an undergraduate degree. And that all kind of worked out okay. So I guess I was really a doctor by the time I was 22, 23. Kind of makes you grow up kind of quickly. You know, you go from uh, doing a couple of years like every other university student, partying hard and doing very much work to suddenly finding yourself with clinical duties on the wards. So it's an interesting uh, way of approaching it. So I did end up saving some time, but then eventually through various journeys and decisions, ended up back in Canada after it's kind of, I guess, 2006 or so. And then, so it didn't end up saving much time, but did my residency here in Ottawa with uh, quite a number of years under my belt of being a doctor. So I guess it uh, kind of helped. Yeah. And then uh, the rest is history, really finished residency here and then uh, started working. It's interesting to hear about your experience going through medicine in the UK system and that introduction of responsibility earlier on. Yeah, it's an interesting system. Um, it's, uh, you know, while you become a doctor early on, you spend much longer before going into, like, choosing your kind of specialty field. And I think their system has shortened a bit now since I was last there, but you spent quite a number of years doing either kind of medical training or surgical training before choosing, like, a residency, which over there is kind of like, a registrar it's called the registrar so in some ways it's fast forward but in other ways it's much less direct than over here because you know straight from med school you're into residency then you're like out so it's an interesting system just pros and cons to both probably uh, and then the other thing of course is even though i'm canadian i came back here as an img so always a little bit of luck in terms of actually finding a residency spot when you're coming back absolutely could you tell us about what originally drew you to ENT? Yeah, I guess um, 
when I was in England, um, I guess, let's see, maybe about 2002, and it probably gives away how old I am, but I was uh, doing this kind of surgical rotation that they had back then, and you had to do about four or five years of surgical rotations before you could actually, like, you know, do ENT or urology or whatever. And so one of the rotations I did was ENT. And uh, actually, I'll, I'll admit it straight up, I didn't really enjoy that rotation. And that was six months. So, you know, you get a real good chance to get your teeth sunk into something when you do something for six months. And so after that rotation, I wasn't that impressed. The ENT over there where I was was kind of different from what ENT is like over here. And actually, I was really enjoyed my six months doing oral maxillofacial surgery, which was actually all the head and neck cancer that ENT does here was done by the OMF guys where I was. So that's where I actually got my exposure to head and neck cancer, which is often one of the uh, cruel parts of ENT that people really like when they don't really know too much about ENT. And so I almost went back to do dentistry because you had to be a dentist and a surgeon to do OMF in England. I was this close to going back to dental school and then I decided I really didn't want to do that. So, and then I left England and I came back and I really didn't have a lot of things I could apply for both as IMG as well as with my kind of CV. So ENT was one of them and there was one ENT IMG spot in the whole country. Orthopedics was another because I actually did a ton of orthopedic training in England. Uh, I couldn't apply for OMF because I wasn't dental trained. So it was like ENT or ortho basically. So I applied for everything I could. I ended up only interviewing in two places and then ended up in ENT, which I was very happy with and never regretted that decision. So it was really kind of a combination of what I was kind of interested in, but also what my opportunities were at the time. So yeah, that's how I ended up there. That's great to hear how you ended up in ENT. It seems like because the breadth of the specialty, many people can find their interest there in their niche. Yeah, and I got to say in ENT, I mean, it's very varied and it's very functional like everything you do is super functional it's hearing or it's swallowing or you know it's it's something that affects people every day a lot of things that you just take for granted when everything's working properly and um, there's even uh, cosmetic uh, considerations i mean there's so many varied aspects of ent you can be very heavy surgically or you could not be as heavy surgically so there's a lot of opportunity for variations in practice even from when you start to when you finish, your practice can change a lot. So it's really quite a nice specialty, good uh, good call, uh, good lifestyle balance. That's really good, you know, pays well. So, you know, it's actually a, a pretty good surgical specialty if you're going to pick one. Absolutely. There's so many positive aspects. Could you tell us a little bit about how you decided to focus your practice and the process of finding the dizziness clinic? Yeah, so it's really interesting because dizziness and vestibular things not really taught well in the program at the time. And uh, I think that was fairly similar with most programs. Uh, So it's definitely something that you didn't gain as much knowledge in or practice with during residency. And then so I had initially finished residency and decided not to do a fellowship because, as I've already said, I'd been a doctor for almost 20 years at that point didn't really appeal to me to go back and do more school. So I, I actually set up a community practice down at the Winchester Hospital, which is just south of Ottawa. And I uh, started getting into dizziness because I had a lot of dizzy patients. It's a very common referral. It's a referral that a lot of ENTs don't like 
seeing. And it's not because they don't like it. It's just because they don't know too much about how to approach it. And they don't have the time that they would like to spend to deal with it properly. And it's one of those frustrating aspects of, of ENT. You know, every specialty has their frustrating sort of subject matter. And dizziness is definitely that for ENT. I'm seeing a ton of these patients and I'm the new guy. So, you know, that's where all the referrals go. And I was like, these people are just like very unhelped and it's super interesting. Again, extremely functional. And so I just started getting really into it. And then I came up with the idea to partner with, you know, the best way to see these patients is actually partnering with a neurologist because these patients are constantly bouncing back and forth between ENT and neurology usually with a year, year and a half wait in between, often not getting great service or just one half of the story from one side or the other, seemingly fairly arbitrarily who gets referred to where. And it's kind of an area that's ripe for multidisciplinary care. I mean, we all know how cancer clinic works and how great that is. And so like, why can't we do it with this? And actually the, uh, the inspiration for it was from uh, Dr. John Rutka's clinic at the UHN in Toronto, which he runs with a neurologist and a psychiatrist, which is like cool setup. So I had the idea with the chair at the time that we were trying to set something like this up and he was very encouraging about it. And we kind of visited Toronto and see how they do things. And then we kind of set up our own clinic and I happened to come across Dr. Lely at the time, who was also a new neurologist who was interested in dizziness and vestibular disorders from his side of things. And that was just like a stroke of luck, really, because then uh, we got on super well. We're about the same stage of life and we just kind of ran with it. So the whole thing just kind of started maybe about 10 years ago now with some happy coincidence, some good timing and, you know, just filling a niche and filling a need uh, that there was not. And uh, people were very supportive of it and it just kind of grew from there. It's cool that you were able to focus on such a functional disorder and have the time and resources to address it in a unique setting like the multidisciplinary clinic. Yeah, so it's great because, um, you know, what these patients need is time. They need time to tell you about their problem. You need time to try and work through it all and figure it out. Sometimes these patients have been dizzy for a very long time, right? You can't figure that out in a seven and a half minute consultation, no matter how much you want to. And so, you know, we set it up where we'd see every patient, like cancer clinic, an hour, hour and a half, go through all the testing, you know, and like just try and get to the bottom of these patients who've been very dizzy for a very long time. And, you know, nobody's making that up, right? Like people not working, not living their lives, they don't want to do that. And so it, it was just definitely a, a way of assessing and treating these patients that was very needed. And then from our side, it was just amazing to learn from somebody else, you know, impart my knowledge to his side and for him to impart his knowledge to my side probably happened more the other way than <laughs> I probably learned a lot more from him than he learned from me. And then sort of like becoming like, like a symbiotic uh, organism here, like, or like a dizzy organism, which doesn't have these arbitrary silos of ENT and neuro or, you know, peripheral and central because the dizziness doesn't work like that right? Like you can't arbitrarily split it like down the middle. Everything's connected to everything else. So it was just a perfect way of kind of approaching this uh, complex area. I think if you speak to anybody who works in multidisciplinary setting, it's very professionally fulfilling to be able to share your expertise and learn from other people and together kind of make a big difference. Uh, so, you know, that's the, that's kind of the biggest part of a digital clinic from from a professional point of view, but also just 
a lot of patients just like you know you're the, like first person who like ever spent more than 10 minutes listening to his story and even if we can't help them which a lot of time we do but sometimes we can't uh at least they know that uh somebody really tried and uh you know we've maybe given it a name and uh, maybe some treatment suggestions and uh, so it goes a long way for some patients and, you know the fringe benefit is that you know for me anyway i've learned so much from these patients over the last 10 years that's changed my own practice so i went from being fairly kind of general ENT with a focus in seeing busy patients once a week to now almost being like 90% dizziness. So I see a lot of dizzy patients like every single day. You know, it doesn't actually get boring. To most ENTs, that would sound horrible. <laughs> but for, for me, I kind of enjoy it. And uh, just being able to use all that experience to then really quickly diagnose people, like it just then becomes more like pattern recognition a lot of times. Sometimes people throw the awkward ball. And then uh, in my own practice has changed so significantly. So I would consider myself almost half a neurologist now in terms of doing things like treating headaches and things like that. Things that, you know, ENTs would not normally do, but just uh, kind of grew my own professional skills and uh, that I've learned over the years to kind of suit the patients that I see. So that's pretty cool just professionally in terms of becoming so um, kind of varied in terms of what I can do. Right. And it's interesting that you can change the focus of your practice later on in your career as well. And it doesn't have to be a decision made in the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. I think people's practice patterns will constantly shift throughout their career from beginning to end. At, at first, you might start getting really hyper-specialized and you might spread out, then you might specialize in something else. You know, interests change, things change, practice patterns change, and so it's good to be flexible. And uh, ENT definitely allows you to do that. Absolutely. And can you tell us about what a typical week looks like for you? Well, it's just seeing busy patients. <laughs> so uh, I guess my practice is a little bit more medical than surgical. I do have a I would say small to medium-sized surgical practice doing endoscopic ear surgery, which is a thing I actually started doing very recently. The uh, hospital was quite encouraging because it's something that hadn't been offered in uh, in our region yet. And it's kind of the new trendy way of doing ear surgery right now, kind of like when endoscopic uh, sinus surgery came out. We're all, everybody's all on board. And so we started a program doing endoscopic ear surgery, which you know, I'm no pro at yet, but uh, it's been fun to kind of uh, create and develop new surgical skills, even at this stage in the career, which is always cool. But other than that, I spend a lot of days in clinic seeing patients, and it's mostly kind of dizziness, migraine, hearing problems. Sudden hearing loss is a huge thing since COVID started, but we see a lot of sudden hearing loss and then other ear complaints. So I'm almost completely otology, neuro-otology focused. And I still have patients with other aspects of ENT that are either old patients of mine or just working through referrals from even two years ago. But generally, my practice is mostly otology and neuro-otology focused now. Well, that sounds like a really interesting and rewarding way to structure your practice. What's your favorite or most rewarding aspect of your practice? Yeah, I think being able to tell patients exactly what the problem is, what caused it, and what we can do about it for something that has been not diagnosed for maybe a long time, maybe by many other people is is definitely rewarding and then even more rewarding for that is when they are better when you see them the next time 
And I know the residents get the impression probably that none of these patients ever get better, but uh, that's because they don't see the follow-ups. <laughs> the, uh, the patients mostly do get better. Some some don't, but mostly do get better. At least good enough to get back to work or you know do the things that they want to do. So that is definitely what kind of keeps you going. It'd be really difficult to do something every day where nobody ever got better. Even if you were giving them the satisfaction of a diagnosis, it's, it would still be difficult to to keep doing it if you're not making anybody better. So that is definitely one of the rewarding aspects of it. As I already mentioned, working with other professionals, learning from them, expanding your own scope of knowledge, way past what it really should be as uh, you know, in your particular specialty, breaking down silos of knowledge, trying to spread those areas of knowledge to colleagues and family doctors and whoever wants to learn, basically that's been one of the big missions that we've had. And I think uh, we've seen tangible areas of success now after, you know, five, 10 years of just spreading the word and spreading the expertise around. So that's been another rewarding aspect of it too, just trying to get everybody on the same page and spread the knowledge around. On the other side of things, what would you say is the most challenging aspect? Oh, the challenging ones are always the challenging patients, right? The patients who you just don't know and you can't figure it out. And it's just another long line of people that they've seen that don't know and then you don't know how to help them and they don't get better and that's always that's always a difficult difficult situation luckily it doesn't happen that often but it still does definitely does happen and that's always challenging the biggest challenge probably for everybody is working with the resources that we have you know we're, we're lucky enough here in ottawa we're getting a brand new hospital who knows when it's actually going to be built but we're getting a new hospital with a new clinic because our current clinic is pretty um, old and so that's nice, but you know, everybody's got resource restraints. COVID definitely didn't help it, but COVID didn't create the problem, just made it worse. So that's a, a theme you'll hear across all areas of life, not just healthcare, but especially in healthcare. And that's always a big challenge on the day-to-day trying to deal with resource issues. Just uh, working through one patient at a time and you know, you can have to do what you can do, but uh, that's always a challenge. I can definitely see how helping patients and improve their quality of life is most rewarding. It can be the most challenging when that path to helping them and getting to the root of the issue is longer and difficult. We mentioned um, your research interest in the introduction. Could you give us some more insight into your current research? Yeah. So one of the advantages of starting a new program uh, is you could design things from the ground up. And so one of the things we made sure was that when we started the Dizzy Clinic and then later the Rapid Access Clinic, which is like a sister clinic, we set up a basically a kind of data banking project where we would collect a whole bunch of symptom score and other information from patients and just keep it in a big anonymized database so that we can then mine that database later for information, you know, outcomes, trends, whatever. And so that was a good bit of insight that we had to do that because you know, later, four or five years later, then starts to bear fruit in terms of figuring out, like, why are these patients so chronically dizzy? What is making them that way, where some patients get better? Like, we're trying to figure out why patients end up with chronic dizziness. So chronic dizziness is definitely one of my areas of research interest. Uh, chronic dizziness, why does it happen? Who is more at risk of developing chronic dizziness and what we can do about it? You know, dizziness is not a big area of research. It is not a lot of people or centers doing it in the world. You go to the big biannual Barani meeting where basically everyone who's who of vestibular and dizziness research goes, it's only like 300 people. <laughs> 
for the whole world. So it's not a lot of people. It's uh, challenging to get funding. And despite it being such a common affliction of everybody, uh, nobody seems to want to fund it. So it's really been challenging. But Definitely, we're putting out some good work in the area of chronic dizziness. I, I work with some of my colleagues on hearing research as well, you know, sudden hearing loss, things like that. I'm actually pretty interested in uh, BPPV as well, so benign positional vertigo, because that's also super common and surprisingly poorly treated. And so we actually have a kind of an innovation project going right now. And this really got pushed ahead because of virtual care to try and use some kind of digital AI solution to diagnose patients with BPVV after, you know, if you go on like the Rogers homepage, you like get the chat bot or, you know, a lot of websites these days, you're just talking to a chat bot. So we're trying to make like a chat bot or something where they can get diagnosed and then given the treatments that they need without having to go to the merge or whatever. Uh, so that's kind of a big project we're hoping to start right now as well as another trial we're doing on BPVD. So those are my two big areas right now is a general work, a, a different kind of projects on chronic dizziness, as well as on uh, BPVD. That's really interesting how, because you're seeing such a large volume of dizziness patients, you're able to create a database that can help streamline research. Yeah, uh, I know there's some colleagues of mine who started uh, recently or, or after I started and with very particular specialist interests. And I'm like, you know, first thing you got, you got to do before you start seeing all these patients is like start collecting them. <laughs> just uh, start from the beginning, even if it's just like on an Excel spreadsheet, you know, start with something because uh, then you can, you know, later on you can, that can bear fruit. But if you don't start it, you never get it. Great. And finally, we wanted to ask if you have any advice for medical students in general and for those interested in olaryngology. I give the advice that I give to all students who ask about basically the common question is like, how did you decide you wanted to do X or not do X? And the advice I have is that you got to choose something that you can deal with the bad stuff every day, the bad parts of it, right? Because most of the time it's good stuff. Sometimes you have to do with all the bad things or the really common things. If you don't think you can deal with all the bad parts or the common parts, the specialty, then that's probably not for you because that's probably what you have to deal with a lot before you get to the more interesting stuff. Medicine is like 90% routine and 10% craziness. And so if you can't deal with the routine, you're not going to enjoy yourself. And then the other advice is uh, people always ask me, well, what would you suggest in terms of picking this residency versus this residency or that residency, you know, which university? To me, I give that very, I don't know if it's just my uh, approach to it, but uh, maybe coming from an area where I didn't have too much choice. But if you have to pick, I mean, probably you're going to be just as good a specialist or a doctor from any residency. So you should pick the one where you want to live for five years, you know, and that could be because people are there or family or you just want to check it out. Or you want to move away from family. I don't know. But just pick somewhere where you think you can live for five years uh, and maybe for longer, because a lot of people end up staying where they do residency, whether they intend to do that at the beginning or not. So, you know, that's how I tell people to choose where, where to go. In terms of ENT, I mean, if you want to do ENT, the best thing to do is just try and see lots of different parts of ENT. A lot of universities still don't have any mandatory ENT. Uh, in Ottawa, we have one week, but you know your experience of of ENT even in Ottawa will really 
highly depend on where you spend, which hospital you go to that week, or you end up in the OR or in the clinic, you know, who you work with it can be extremely variable, even in one medical school. So, and especially if then you don't have ENT exposure, then you really don't know. So I think if there's any interest at all, I think you just have to try and try hard to get some exposure to different parts of it and see if you really like it. Of course, kind of COVID makes that really difficult these days. And I feel bad for students since COVID. It's been really difficult. I don't even know what they, how, I can only imagine how bad it's been. But now things are kind of opening up a little bit. Just try and experience different parts and see if it's for you. And uh, if you do want to get into ENT, ENT, it's fairly competitive. Um, so you do need to get around and uh, see people and go to different places. You know, show yourself, work hard. And uh, yeah, should work out. It's really great advice, particularly for the students going through CARM's process now and thinking about where they can do residency and what is the best fit. Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, if you go somewhere and you don't like the people, like you don't want to go there for residency, right? No matter how reputable or unreputable or whatever, or how much surgery they do or how little, everybody's going to end up fine at the end, right? Despite what everybody says about this program being more surgical, that program being less surgical, everybody is perfectly fine at the end. So can you work with these people for five years? Can you live there for five years? That's the important thing because that there's more to life than work. That's what really makes residency good is the people you work with and where you're living. Because, you know, you'll learn your surgery. You'll learn your facts. Everybody learns that stuff. Um, so, yeah, it's more, more to life than uh, learning things. That's a really great point as well. Thank you so much, Dr. Shea, for taking this time to talk with us about your journey, how you focus your practice and research. And thank you for the listeners who tuned in. We hope to see you back for our next episode.